Let me just pray, start with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this amazing book we call Hebrews. We ask for your Spirit to guide us into all truth, to help us to understand what we're going to read and study today. May your Spirit enable us to apply what we hear, that we would we would not harden our hearts, and that we would have tender hearts to your word, and we would heed what we see, what we listen to, what we what we hear. We would be doers, not just hearers only. May your truth affect us, however that needs to be. We would uh, be soft ground, the seed would fall into that uh, soft ground and bear much fruit. So those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior today, may they come to know you today. May they see the truth here and heed its warnings. The believers would be affected by the truth as well. We would take heed to the warnings and act upon them. So may your word be accurately and faithfully proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the long history of our earth, no migration of people began so well and with such great expectations as Israel's exodus from the country of Egypt. And during the night, we need to understand something a little of this migration and Israel's beginnings and their expectations so that we understand what Hebrews is talking about. It is written to Hebrews. This particular ethnic group, some people call them Jews, but a Jew is really more of a religion than an ethnicity. So this is the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And so during the night, Israel was secure in their homes. We, we call it Passover. And there was a, the Bible says God sent a death angel, and he struck down all the firstborn of Egypt because they did not have blood on the doorpost of their homes. This event marked the end of 430 years of slavery, of bondage in Egypt. And uh, things were so bad, in fact, Pharaoh's own son died, and so Pharaoh was not happy, of course. So he, he summoned Moses, and he commanded Israel to leave the country. The Bible says that some 600,000 men plus women and children and their livestock began an orderly exodus out of the country. It's interesting to me that Israel left the country, despite the fact being slaves, they left as rich people. (laughs) Because the Egyptians wanted them gone, they gave them great riches. And then God did an amazing thing as Israel entered into the wilderness. He didn't leave them alone. He guided them. In fact, the Bible says he made a pillar of cloud in, in the sky there to lead the way for them. And then at sunset, you'll see some various drawings on the screen here depicting these stories, but uh, then at sunset, the Bible says the, the pillar of cloud became a pillar of fire so that every night Israel would be lighted by its orange glow. And then there was the pursuit by Pharaoh and his armies He wasn't happy with his decisions, so he pursued Israel. 
And Israel at that time was trapped by the sea. But the pillar protectively moved behind Israel, and, and the Bible says it shielded the people from the Egyptian armies, providing light for Israel and darkness to the Egyptians. The Bible also says Moses then stretched forth his hand, and then God brought forth a great wind, and it created a dry path through the sea for the people of Israel to go across on dry ground. Pharaoh's armies saw this, and they thought they could follow. So the armies of, of, of Egypt followed and, and uh, tried to catch up to Israel, but God made the chariots lose control. Then the armies realized at some point that it was too late, that God was actually fighting against them. And they tried to turn to flee, but the Bible says Moses stretched forth his arm and his hand again, and the sea closed on them and destroyed the armies of Egypt. And then Israel celebrated God's victory. That was an awesome beginning. (laughs) And I've only given you part of the story. They had great hopes, great dreams. They were thinking, great, 430 years of slavery, now we're going to the promised land. Soon it's going to happen, we're going to enter into this rest. But those of you who read your Bibles know that's not the whole story. You see, what began so well ended so poorly. Of the 600,000 men, only two of them over the age of 20 actually entered into the promised land. And they didn't get to enter in until 40 years later. Imagine how they felt. See, the Bible says, because of unbelief, they died in the wilderness. Those over 20 years old at the time, who did not believe they could conquer the land, because of that unbelief, God says, you will die. So for the next 40 years, they died. So it was only Joshua and Caleb who entered in. The lesson of Israel's history is this, my friends, that that it's possible to begin well and end poorly. In fact, this is a, is a really a tragic human tendency, is it not? That really dominates much of the human spiritual experience. There are many people who start well but do not finish well. They tend to think that life is more of a, you know, a hundred, a hundred meter dash instead of a marathon. And this is really the concern that haunts the writer of Hebrews here. His fear is that Israel's fate would be repeated in the, the Jewish church. He's, he's writing to these, these, these Christians, to the Hebrew church here, and he's concerned about them. Hard times are coming. Are you going to endure? Don't be like Israel. Keep going on. Persevere. And many of their Spiritual exoduses had been a beautiful thing. But now they're under hardship, as many Christians in the first century went through. And so the Holy Spirit is concerned that they would finish well. So with that in mind, look at the text. Hebrews 3, verse 7. 
Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, is carrying on in this context, by the way. The context, if you go all the way up to verse 1, is showing us that Jesus is greater than Moses. <laughs> Jesus is greater than Moses. And so, we've already seen how Jesus is greater than Moses. So, verse 7 carries on this thought, starting with a therefore. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath... They shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was He provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Here's the proposition for you to consider today. That God wants you to keep holding on to Jesus Christ. He wants you to keep holding on, to endure, to persevere, all the way to the end of your life. There's a temptation, just like these people, that when life gets hard, you give up. Christ isn't enough, somehow. That's the temptation that we all need to be aware of. And so, the Holy Spirit gives us a warning here. The warning is found in verse chapter 3, sorry. Chapter 3, verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. It's interesting, as the writer here is using Old Testament, by the way, and it goes all the way back to Psalm 95, he's convinced that the warning here comes directly from the Holy Spirit to his hearers. You notice verse 7 says, as the Holy Spirit says. This comes directly from God Himself. And, and, and it's for us today, by the way, as well. It, it remains the Holy Spirit's message. He doesn't change His mind. And so therefore, we must heed God's message for the church. So look at the warning here in verse 8. Simply this, do not harden your heart. What does that mean? What does it mean to harden your heart? Well, two key words in these verses here are going to help us 
understand what it actually means to harden one's heart. There in verse 8, as I said, it's referencing Psalm 95. There's the English words there, rebellion and testing, are different from the Hebrew words in Psalm, or Psalm 95. So let me just read for you, and I'll underline the same words here for you. So you can see the words rebellion and testing in Hebrew. Psalm 95, verse 7 in, says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the desert. Now, if you're a little ignorant on your uh, Israeli history, let me catch you up to speed very quickly. Those, those words there, Meribah and Massah, are actually pointing us to Exodus chapter 17. It's early in the Exodus. They've uh, just recently come out of Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. So Israel's camped here somewhere near Mount Sinai. They've run out of water. And as Israel typically does when they run out of something, what do they do? They complain. (laughs) They're grumbling, they're complaining, they're quarreling with Moses. And so look what Moses says in Exodus 17, verse 2. He says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And then, following God's instruction... Moses actually struck the rock, because God told him in this case, strike the rock, and the rock gave water to Israel. And the story concludes with these words, verse 7, Exodus 17, verse 7, he called the place Massah, which means testing, and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? So, what can we learn from Exodus? What can we learn from Psalm 95? What can we learn from Hebrews 3? Number one, that a hard heart originates in unbelief. How do you get to to a hard heart? Well, (laughs) the Bible says unbelief. What do we have going on here? Well, at first, Israel was ready to follow God anywhere. They happily left Egypt. But as soon as the good times ended, what are they doing? They're crying out saying, is the Lord among us or not? They they can't find water. They're in the desert. They're in the wilderness. Some say, well, they had a fair weather faith. You know, it's, it's kind of like that kind of a faith. It's good until the first trial comes along. And then that so-called faith dissolves into unbelief. Well, my friends, it gets worse because, as we're going to see here, the unbelief leads to disobedience. And so the climax of Israel's unbelief actually happens in the events of Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Israel's unbelief is taking place here at the border of the promised land. They finally got there. And so Israel sends in 12 spies into to the promised land of Canaan, spied out, see what it's like. And sadly, they returned with conflicting recommendations. And some of you might even know the song. I grew up singing a song 
Twelve men went to spy out Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. Some of you might even know the, I know these, you know, it's, it's, you ever done the little thing with your fingers? You know, ten were bad and two were good, right? You ever done that? That's amazing what you learn in Sunday school as a kid. It's great. I've never forgotten it, right? Twelve men went to spy out Canaan. Ten were bad and two were good. What do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad and two were good. Some saw giants big and strong. Some saw God was in it all. Ten were bad and two were good. Anyway, that's how the song goes. But now you'll never... See, it's like when I was a little kid, I've never forgotten this story ever since then because of that song. But that's what the Bible says. There was ten Israeli spies who went in, they see the land... And they come back and say, impossible, we can't conquer it. But then there were two, Joshua and Caleb. They don't see big giants. They see a big God. That's what they see. God says, go and conquer the land. They don't care what's there. <laughs> they're, they're believing in God, but the ten spies choose to unbelieve. And then that night, sadly, the unbelief just spreads through Israel. People were weeping. Many people are actually calling for new leaders. They, some of them, many of them wanted to return to Egypt. Can you imagine that? And then some of them even talked about killing Joshua and Caleb because they dared to believe that God would give them the land. I want you to notice how God responds. Here's what he says. Numbers 14, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? (laughs) Had they forgotten the ten plagues that God wiped out the greatest nation in the world with? Ten plagues on Egypt. You say, wow, I mean, how can this be? Israel was unbelieving here, even though they had witnessed all these supernatural events. They refused to believe God would give them the land. These stories hopefully help us to understand what the psalmist was writing about here as well as whoever the writer of Hebrews is writing about. So let me just kind of summarize here for the moment what we've seen so far. We've seen that a hard heart originates in unbelief. That, we see, ends up producing a contempt for God, which actually shows itself in bad behavior in Israel. We see the the negativism, the grumbling, the quarreling, and disobedience. And so, my friends, we'd be wise to look at the Scriptures here, kind of use them as a mirror, and hold God's Word up to our hearts. See what we can take from it, and take an accurate reading of our spiritual pulse. Ask yourself, what does our behavior indicate? Do we have a hardening heart or a tender heart? So that's the warning. Don't harden your heart, God says. So let's look at the result. Second of all, let's see the result here. What was the result 
of Israel's hard heart, according to Psalm 95? One word, judgment. Judgment. The rebels were not allowed into the promised land. Those who chose to not believe God were not allowed into Canaan. Some might say, well, wait a minute, does does God forgive sin? Yes, He does. But even though God forgives sin when we repent, there are still consequences for sin. I want you to notice what the Bible says here in Numbers 14, verse 20. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that it did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. Nobody over the age of 20 years old at the time of the Exodus there entered into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. The rest died in the wilderness. God's judgment came upon them for their unbelief. And so the writer of Hebrews is using these real stories, these events, And he's warning his hearers, these Hebrews, in the church. He wants his readers to see that it is possible, like Israel, to have a remarkable spiritual exodus and yet fall by the way when trouble comes into your life. When hardship comes and trials come, they can cause us to fall. And so this is the Holy Spirit's message for the church. It's God's message for us. And so... Jesus himself even warned us about those who will fall away. Look what he says in the parable of the soils. Matthew chapter 13, verse 20. Jesus said, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus is saying this is an unbeliever. Just because there is an immediate response to the gospel in someone's life doesn't make them a Christian. And the problem today is there are many people, when asked about faith, they what they do is they point to their exodus. You know, when they so-called began with Christ. And they can talk about their salvation experience. How dare you, by the way, question their experience. (laughs) After all, they might say, hey, you know, I went forward during an evangelistic service, so I'm a Christian. Like Israel, they left Egypt They were baptized, drank from the same rock. (laughs) They might even use the vocabulary that Christians are supposed to use, whatever that is. But trouble comes in their life, and they turn away. Their exodus becomes a convenient memory for them. 
trust God? Hmm. That's a problem for some of these people because they don't have a genuine faith. As James says, it's a dead faith. And so my friend, if you want to avoid God's judgment, Hebrews is saying make sure your faith is alive in Christ. Hebrews is saying hold on to Christ. Keep holding on to Christ. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than the Old Testament and the whole sacrificial system. He's better than everything. Keep holding on to Christ. So he's given us a very serious warning here. Do not harden your hearts. And then he's told us the result of unbelief is judgment. And now what he's going to do here in the text, he's going to give us a personal exhortation. And the purpose of this is it hopefully it will help us and prevent us from unbelief. So look at the application here, starting in verse 12. First of all, he says, protect your heart. Protect your heart. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Serious stuff here. The words take heart, or sorry, take care. Some of your Bibles, New KJV says beware. You need to understand those those words there in uh, the Greek language are a present active imperative. Present just means continuous action. Active means this is something you're supposed to do. Imperative means it's a command. You have no option. Take care. Beware. Act upon these warnings, in other words. Say, well, take care for what? God's concerned about your heart. Notice, you're to take care. Beware for your heart. Why? Because he says an unbelieving heart is going to get you into big trouble. Because notice the phrase in the text, fall away. Fall away. Very serious here. It means to deliberately apostatize. It means to abandon a former relationship, to turn away from Christ, is what the warning is. Now listen closely here, because if you, if you turn away from Christ, the Bible says you're going to suffer a huge penalty. You say, well, what is it? Well, here's the argument. If you follow Hebrews' argument here, we, we saw in the previous verses, verses 1 through 6, because Christ is greater than Moses... Well, then, the, the, the logical argument here is the loss it suffered if you reject Christ is going to be greater than the loss you suffer from rejecting Moses. It's bad enough to reject Moses. He's God's prophet. But how dare we, re- we reject the greatest prophet of all, Jesus himself? We see the example here, the rebels in Moses' day, what did they miss? They missed the promised land. They died in the wilderness. That's bad. But it's even greater if you reject Jesus, reject Christ, then you forfeit eternal blessings. And so, well, some people might say, well, then can that happen to me? Can that happen to me? Well, the writer of Hebrews is concerned about people in the church. Can it happen to you? Yeah, it can happen to anyone can happen to anyone. So we'd be wise here to protect our hearts. 
Hebrews goes on to tell us, not only protect your heart, but he says, help each other. Help each other. Look at verse 13. Exhort one another every day. (laughs) The word exhort there, again, another present active imperative verb. Continuous action, something you're commanded to do. It's not an option. And think about it in relation to Israel. Think how different would it have been for Israel if they had people there who were daily encouraging each other instead of grumbling and complaining and falling into this negativism and the the, the quarreling and the, the, the grumbling. How would life have been different for them? And so here's the lesson, I think, that God has for us, that isolation is dangerous. It's dangerous. Because it says here, you need to be exhorting one another every day. Every day. Isolation is dangerous. You say, well, why? Because we're prone to deception, according to verse 13. Because verse 13 goes on to say, Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So beware of sin. Beware of the deception of sin. See, we're prone to deception. Our problem is, in isolation, Satan can pick you off. You ever watch those uh, TV documentaries, animal documentaries, where lions go and chase after the deer? You notice what uh, the animals, the carnivores try to do? They try to isolate an animal. Once they've isolated an animal, even so, I've even seen it, they do it with elephants. You say, can they, can they destroy an elephant? Yeah. Lions isolate an elephant, and they'll take an elephant down. But when the elephants stick together, can't be defeated. And Satan is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And he's going to try to isolate you. And when he isolates you, you're a sitting duck. Now, you may not know what sitting duck is. <laughs> That's just a hunter's term. Duck sitting on the water is easy pickings. The hunter can shoot it. Easy to hit. Once that duck starts flying... Very hard to hit. They're very fast. They can easily get out of range quickly. We don't want to be a sitting duck. We don't, be, we don't want to be the isolated deer. Easy pickings for Satan. So when you're alone, it's tempting kind of to just kind of take the easy path instead of the right one. Sometimes the right path is difficult. But what's the solution? The Bible here tells us encourage each other daily. That means... Obviously, not just Sunday. Sunday's not enough. We need to encourage each other daily. We need to come up to that drifting soul, as Hebrews 2 talks about, and say, hey, are you listening to God's voice? Here's God's voice. Maybe they're not, they're maybe not even reading God's word. Maybe you need to read God's word to them so they can hear God's voice. And encourage them, hey, heed what the Bible says so you're not going to be deceived by your enemies. So we need to help each other. We need to protect our hearts. But verse 14 tells us persevere. Persevere. Look what verse 14 says. 
For we have come to share in Christ. That's clearly talking about believers. You have come to share in Christ. Key word though, if. Conditional. You are sharing in Christ. You are a believer. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I want you to notice the comparison here. Because Israel had confidence just after the Exodus. They had great confidence. They're walking out of Egypt with great riches. Yay, we're no longer slaves. But it faded quickly, just a few days into the wilderness. They're grumbling and complaining because they don't have water. That's We're very much like Israel. You know, we have no doubts when we met Christ, maybe. And you shouldn't have. Why is that? Because true Christians persevere to the end. I want you to please notice what the text says here, because it says we have come to share in Christ. In the original language, it's in the perfect tense. just means that our belief began at some point in the past, and it continues to hold firm into the present. So the text here is coming with a warning, in other words. It's, it's telling us, hey, my friend, don't weaken your grip on Christ. You put your grip on Christ. You, you, at one point in your life, you held on to Christ. You put your faith in Christ. Don't relinquish your faith in Christ. Hold on tight. Or your confidence has to hold on. Keep holding on to Christ. Keep looking at His Word and heed what it says. Well, so far the Holy Spirit's given us a warning about unbelief. He's given us the result here that, hey, if you, you fall prey to unbelief, you don't heed this warning, serious judgment is coming. He's given us some great application that will hopefully keep us from unbelief, prevent our hearts from falling in unbelief. But the Holy Spirit ends here by giving us six questions. Really uh, rhetorical questions answered with a, sorry, answered with a rhetorical question. So look at it this way. There's three pairs, two questions each. Verses 16 to 18. So, God, I find this amazing how God's designed this particular text here. So bear in mind, the first question of each pair is going to ask a question. The second question is going to answer that first question, okay? So let's look at these soul-searching questions to a struggling church. Verse 16 is the first question. Verse 16, chapter 3. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Well, the answer is right there, is it not? What Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So who were the ones who rebelled? The text says it's those who were led out of Egypt by Moses. And you say, well, what's the point? The unbelievers here, take note, started with great hope. Everybody, though, died in the desert, minus Joshua and Caleb. All those who had begun in the Exodus had great expectations. That wasn't enough. Look at the question, verse 17. With whom was God provoked for 40 years? 
The answer is, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? In other words, those who did not believe in God. And here's the point, my friend. Again, hope is not enough. Hope is not enough. We must believe in God. You see, people, the people here, the Israelites who angered God, were those who did not believe that He would actually provide for them. God said He would give them the promised land. Israel is Israel's land. By the way, still is. <laughs> Hasn't changed. God promised them that land they needed to believe. And then the third pair asked the question, to whom did God swear they would not enter His rest? Answer, it was to those who were disobedient. God calls them disobedient. So here's the point, my friends. Unbelief leads to wrong action. That's why you need to guard your heart, Proverbs says. Guard your heart, because it's out of your heart are all the issues of life. You're going to end up acting upon what you believe in. So your theology will affect what you do. Bad theology, bad obedience, <laughs> right? Disobedience. And that's what we see here because the, the three sets of questions here are really presenting a downward spiral. It's the descent into a hard heart. So have a look at this because it starts with hope, which we see unbelief coming out of that, which eventually leads to disobedience. They're standing at the promised land. God says, go in and conquer. They say, no. So the tragic result is verse 19. God says here, in verse 19, so we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Unable. They were unable. So here's... Here's the theme coming from our text today, my friends, that true Christians will keep holding on to Christ all the way to the end. True Christians persevere. They endure. They keep holding on to Christ despite hardships and trials and, and suffering. True Christians do not give up. By God's grace, they endure. So my non-Christian friend, you unbeliever, listen closely. If, if you've never even made a start with God, then you must put your hope in Him and in Him alone. It starts there. You must turn from your sin. You must turn from your self-reliance. You must put your confidence in a great Savior, who, of course, is Jesus. And then these things here are written. You might believe and endure and have life. For you, my Christian friend, by God's grace, take heed to the warning. Take heed to the example here we see of Israel. God wants us to persevere in our faith, in our obedience. He wants you to keep holding on to Christ. Never give up on Him. Believe that He is more than enough. And so, may you heed His word. May you heed the warning so that you would finish your race well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word. May we see 
believe may have an effect, life-changing effect upon us, may we have the right belief so that we have right actions. May we have good theology so we'd have the right methodology. May we learn from the examples we see in the Bible. It's hard to read these. May we take from them what you want us to learn. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we would truly behold wonderful things from your word. May we act upon them. May we take heed to the warning of of a hardened heart. May we see how unbelief can have drastic consequences. May we fear your judgments, but may we also run to you, run to Christ, the only one who can can save us from your judgment. So as we fear and respect you, may it also cause us to run to you. May we act upon these, these words here, taking care that there would not be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that would lead us to apostasy, that we would not fall away from you, that we would hold on and keep holding on to Christ. May we truly believe that He is supreme and the best, is better than, than any other option. May that cause us to persevere all the way to the end of our life. In Jesus' name we pray.